know, for the last few weeks as a church, we've been immersed in this series, really examining the message of marriage, specifically the fact that God designed and desires still for marriage to convey the gospel. The gospel, of course, being that God so loves the world that he gave Jesus, his son, to die on the cross so that whoever would believe in him, whoever would receive forgiveness of their sins, would have eternal life, the life that is truly life, certainly forever, but also beginning right here and right now. And so our assumption and presupposition throughout this series is that marriage is ultimately, and marriage is primarily for God. And therefore, God is for marriage. The reality being that ultimately, marriage is not about us. As a matter of fact, right now with your with passion and enthusiasm on an extended President's Day Sunday, tell your neighbor like you mean it, it ain't about you. It ain't about you. It's not about me. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, in order for husbands and wives to chart a course toward happily ever after, it requires a radical and relentless intentionality to live happily even after the honeymoon, happily even after the kids, and as we'll see this week, happily even after the fight. Now, I hope I don't shatter anyone's marital illusions when I say that conflict in marriage is inevitable. It is absolutely going to happen. When you think about what happens when marriage happens, you've got a man and a woman coming together that come from different backgrounds, different families of origin. They've got different personality types. They've got different styles of communication, conflict resolution, spending, parenting, life in general styles. The mystery is not that we have conflict in marriage. The mystery is that we don't have more conflict in marriage than we have. And yet, there's this incredible dynamic that God calls us to that, that he's created marriage for where this husband and wife come together to become united, one flesh, one mind, one heart, one soul. And that's what's ultimately going on. And yet, we get sideways with each other. It happens all too regularly. We're, we're all familiar with it, whether we're married or not. And yet, I am so fired up about this message because let me tell you a few things that's gonna ha that are going to happen in this message. First of all, a lot of us in this room are going to be affirmed. You're going to be reaffirmed in your commitment to fight for your marriage. You're going to realize again and anew and afresh that God actually can and does operate even through the conflict to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I also know this. In a room like this, or maybe watching online, there are a number of marriages right now that are just kind of drifting towards the rocks. And God is going to arrest that drift. God is going to put in your hands some tools and some principles that will help you get back out onto the smooth seas that you were created for in marriage. But there are also a number of folks here in the room who are not yet married, who are not married, and you're going to take what God has given to us this week and download it into your life and appropriate it in such a way that you're going to avoid a lot of the messes that many of us who are married make on a regular basis. So it's an exciting time. I'm fired up about this message and about this message of hope 
that God has for every single one of us here today. Now, I did come across a really fascinating statistic as I was researching and preparing for this message. And I'll tell you before I give you the number that it's a little bit, initially, it's, it's alarming. When you first hear this number, you're going to be a little bit alarmed. But, but hang in there because I think there's some hope on the backside of this alarm bell, if you will. There was a group of researchers that has studied married couples across decades. And not only have they studied marriage in general, they've studied specific couples from very early in their marriage through the kind of the adolescence of marriage into the mature years of marriage. And they've noticed across the years a number of patterns that emerge in marriages universally. One of the patterns that they noticed is that most conflict in marriage is, is categor- categorable, if that's a good word. Can we make up a word on Sunday morning? You can categorable a word, categorable marriage, conflict into two categories, either perpetual or resolvable. Perpetual or resolvable. Now, here's the alarming statistic. As they've studied thousands of couples, tens of thousands of marriage years across these couples, they discovered that 69% of relational differences in marriage are perpetual. 69% of relational differences in marriage are not resolvable. Now, some of you who are not married, you look at that and you go, 69%? What's the point? Why even try? I mean, if 69, almost 70% of the problems are not resolvable, why would anybody get married? And I, and I get that. But take it from somebody who is a marriage veteran and from a lot of others in the room, we hear 69% and we go, yeah, that actually probably is a little bit low. (laughs) I mean, I'm just just telling you, I I think that may be a little conservative. But the trick, actually the skill and the prayer and the process of marriage is figuring out which ones are perpetual and which ones are resolvable? Which ones are worth actually fighting for our marriages over? I can promise you after 25 plus years, Julie has a laundry list of things that she realizes just aren't that big a deal. That she's got bigger fish to fry and the things she needs to try to pray me out of and to correct in my life. And so that's part of what we do over time is we figure out which categories the conflict and the personality and relational differences are going to be put into. Now, Julie and I, by the grace of God, have a phenomenal marriage. We are having more fun right now. Our kids are off in college. We are loving the empty nest. And yet, even still, we have our moments. One happened just a few weeks ago that I, um, I have permission to share with you. Um, which is very critical as a pastor when you're coming up with, you know, it's one thing when you're creating illustrations for a sermon on grace. It's another one when you're creating illustrations and finding them from your own personal experience in conflict and marriage. Be very careful, very careful. But I have permission to share this one. Now, part of the differences between Julie and me is just found in our personality types. I mean, we are very, very different personalities, particularly when it comes to problem solving. When I'm faced with a problem or a challenge, I am automatically looking for the absolute 
fastest route from problem to solution, straight line, A to B. Julie, however, does not process problems the same way. Julie talks through and processes her problems out loud. I get quiet and kind of think about it into myself, figure out a solution, and then just go. It's kind of ready, fire, aim. That, that's my personality type. Julie, she, she processes verbally, and she thinks things through, and that's how she solves problems, and she's brilliant at doing it. But as she's processing, she factors in all possible context and circumstances that have contributed to the problem. A few weeks ago, we were preparing dinner, just the two of us. The kids were back in college from Christmas break, and we were at home, and she was explaining to me a problem that she was facing, and I was listening very attentively, just sweet, wonderful husband, on point, and as soon as she mentioned problem, I immediately started searching for the solution and trying to help her because I'm her husband. And as she explained the problem, she began layering in, like I was saying, a lot of circumstances and context and texture to the story and details and things that, that to my solution-seeking mind were muddying the waters. But to Julie's problem-solving mind, these were all contributing factors. And this was when I made my fatal mistake. As she's layering in context and texture, I made the following expression because I wanted to find a solution. And I'm going to ask the camera if y'all can kind of zoom in on me a little bit here just so I don't want you to miss what Julie saw very close face-to-face -face in our home. She's layering in texture, and I did this. It was not my finest moment as a husband. And I didn't even, it was so reflexive. It wasn't, I was seriously caring. I seriously wanted to help. But what Julie heard or saw in that expression was cut to the chase. Don't bug me with the details. And in that moment, man, it was like somebody threw a switch and she just shut down and she just went, Okay, never mind. I'll, I'll figure it out. And as I said, we were preparing dinner, and I fortunately had to go outside and check on the grill. And as I closed the door to our patio to go check on the grill, it just hit me. And I remember lifting the grill. This is, this is how I was praying through this in this moment. I was like, Lord, I just messed up. And I started to lift the grill, and, and I just heard the Lord say, Mac, you were an idiot. I love you, but you were a marriage idiot in there. And so I checked the grill, and it was you know, coming along fine, and I closed the grill. And then I thought about walking back inside. And have you ever known, men, how many of you as husbands, you know when you've messed up, guys, you are leaving me hanging, men. That is terrible. Guy, I'm going to ask you to be honest in church. How many of you guys, you know when you mess up? It's terrible. It's horrible. You just, I'm, that's terrible. You left your pastor hanging like that. I'm still upset about that a little bit. But I did. I, I knew I had messed up, and I, I stayed out by the grill for a little while longer. Julie was inside working on, you know, the rest of the meal, and, 
And finally, I just went, you know what? There's just nowhere to run and nowhere to hide on this deal. So I walked back inside. I walked into the kitchen. I said, Julie. She goes, yeah. And I said, I'm, I'm just sorry. I blew it. I was an idiot. I didn't mean to be inconsiderate. I promise you. I, but I know that I was. And, I, and I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. And she said, I, I forgive you and, and don't worry about it. And she, I genuinely believe she forgave me in the moment. But it took a little while, you know, for things to get back to normal in the homestead. Conflict is real. Conflict is inevitable. But here's the good news. There is a critical distinction that has to be made when we think about relational conflict, particularly in the context of marriage. Conflict is inevitable, but compassion is a choice. Conflict is inevitable, but we have a choice about whether or not to be compassionate to our spouse. We can choose to forgive. We choose whether or not to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I want you to just think about this for just a brief second. Think about giving your spouse the benefit of the doubt. Remember, they married you. They deserve some benefit of the doubt. That was funny. You should have laughed at that. But my point still holds. Conflict is inevitable, but compassion is a choice. And it's at this precise point that Jesus, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, our, our Christian faith, provides the greatest help that the world has ever known. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, nothing, say nothing, nothing, nothing helps like Jesus when it comes to conflict resolution. There is nothing that the world or humanity has ever devised that can even remotely approach what we're about to get into today. I am so fired up about sharing this with you. Some of you know this. Some of you live it out maybe on a too regular basis, but you know that Jesus helps conflict resolution and sometimes staying away from conflict that's unnecessary. I want to explain kind of why this is before we get into how. If you've got your Bibles with you, look in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's really important to understand the why. It's like our boy Simon Sinek tells business leaders and military leaders, know your why. If you know your why, that will help. That will fuel your drive to overcome obstacles, to surmount the struggles that absolutely will show up. When you start thinking about conflict resolution, here's the why from a Jesus perspective, from, a, from the perspective of a gospel-driven life. And I think this is a faith skill that we need to develop in whatever situation we find ourselves, conflict resolution, work, parenting, dating, school, whatever. How does the gospel make this better? How does the gospel work out in this situation, whatever the situation is, this is what the Bible says about conflict and about getting through it. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old is gone. Don't, that's, that's in the past. The new is here. Now, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So if you want to think about what is the Jesus thing all about, it's about reconciliation. It's about being made right with God. Think about when you, when you get into a, a, a spat with your spouse, a spousal spat, or with anyone. It, there, there's a part of you that if you think about, you know, I know we're going to get through this, but right now it ain't fun. And there's a part of you, when you start thinking about getting to the other side, and you think about reconciliation, and you think about return to normalcy, there's a part of that that's just like, man, glad we got through that one. I grew up in Houston, and so I grew up very close to the Texas Gulf Coast. My grandparents were from Beaumont. I was well acquainted with tropical storms and hurricanes before I was 12 years old. Hurricanes are absolutely awesome in their power. I mean, devastating in what they can do, but they're awesome to behold. And it's always amazing on the other side of a hurricane. You know, you, there's that calm before the storm, and then the storm comes ashore, and there's the eye of the hurricane, then the storm blows through, and then it's just whew, quiet, calm. Probably some trees knocked over, windows blown out, but it's that it's that calm after the storm. It's that, it's that reconciling of what happened. And so it's important for us to understand that in marriage, in God's economy, there will be a backside of the storm. There will be another day if, if we remember that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our job as followers of Christ, if you go by the name of Christian, if you're a Jesus guy or a Jesus girl, you're here to provide the pipeline of reconciliation between people and Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. That's what we're supposed to do, every single one of us. So how can we reason with people? How can we reasonably expect to persuade or convince anyone of the immutable eternal, perfect love of God if we're not people of reconciliation, particularly with those people closest to us, particularly in marriage. So this is our why. God's love, God has called us, he's commanded us, the grace of God compels us to be people of reconciliation. Now, I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, God carries this idea of reconciliation through to our interpersonal relationships. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about how we get through and move beyond conflict in our relationships. Particularly, I think, for marriage. As you're looking up Ephesians chapter 4, I don't think it's, I don't think it's coincidental that this, con that this section of Scripture deals with conflict right before Ephesians chapter 5, which, con which contains God's essay on marriage. Coincidence? I'll let you be the judge. But in Ephesians chapter 4, here's what the Bible says. 
So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now keep in mind, in Paul's context in the first century A.D., almost every Christ follower was a Jew, almost. So when he refers to Gentiles, he's talking about pagans, polytheists, people who have not yet followed Christ. He says, you must no longer live as they do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You see, it's because of sin. Apart from Christ, it's not only our behavior that's broken. It's our thoughts. Even our thoughts are broken apart from Christ. We're, we're darkened in our thinking because we don't have the inside of God. We don't have the wisdom of God yet apart from Christ. Paul, Paul continues this thought. Look at what he says in verse 20. He goes, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth, the reality that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You're, you're, you're putting off the old self. Remember, that verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, listen, hey, keep this in mind. Let, let that old stuff go. Those deceitful desires, those things that you thought were going to satisfy you before you came into a relationship with Jesus, remember this. That was the way you were supposed to think back there. Now, we have to change the way we think. We have to change the reality and the truth upon which we base our lives and our behavior. Now we think differently than before because now we understand, we know the one who is the source of all reality, of all truth. We change the way we think about our spouse. You see, it's, it's in the heart of conflict that we remember, okay, I'm not really happy right now. I'm not really enjoying the whole marriage thing per se, but I'm going to choose to think about that guy or that girl differently. I'm going to love her. I'm going to love him. I don't like him, but I'm going to love him because I'm going to change the way I'm thinking about him because Jesus tells me to. And Jesus knows more than me. Never forget that. You might want to write that down. Jesus knows more than me. That's an important thing to keep in mind. That's a good life skill to hang on to. So we change the way that we think, particularly in conflict. Because a lot of times, conflict comes down to, a, to, a, to an issue of perception. I think one way, Julie thinks another way. But here's the thing we need to remember, that this side of heaven, because of our fallen nature, because of sin that's infected every part of our lives, there is no such thing as an immaculate perception. 
Some of you will get that at lunch, but that's a good line. You, have, you do not have an immaculate perception. Your perception is not 100% accurate. God's is, and we pray and hope that we receive his wisdom and discernment. But ultimately, it's about what he says is real, not what I think is real. And me bringing every thought captive to Christ. So I'm, I'm changing the way that I think. Paul goes on. He says, now, therefore, because you've changed the way that you've thought, because you've changed the way you think about that person, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In marriage, you have to adopt a zero tolerance for dishonesty, mishonesty, or sneaking around in any form or fashion. Or unless Julie has a great point. Julie says you can sneak around in marriage if you're planning a surprise party for me. That's the only time you can sneak in marriage or hide something. In marriage, it is total transparency. Always. Tell the truth, for we are members of one body. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. I love Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. You know what that tells me? Anger is okay. It's appropriate to get angry sometimes. It's okay to be mad at somebody. I remember when our kids were very small, and Joseph especially. Joseph's got a, a really, really sensitive spirit as a kid especially. He'd be like, Daddy, are you mad at me? I'd be like, you bet you're bippy. I'm mad at you, but I love you. And we're not, it's not going to change how I love you. But yeah, I'm mad at you. You disobeyed mom, you're in trouble. It's okay. But how you respond in your anger. And there were times as a dad, I'd be like, you know what? Dad was wrong. I overreacted. What I said was right, the way that I said it was wrong. And I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And just as a parenting aside to the sermon on marriage, you want to talk about empowering your kids? Admit it when you're wrong to them. Confess, confess your sin or, or, or wrong to them. Go, hey, Joseph, Emily, would, would you forgive me? Boy, you watch them. No. I'll think about it and get back to you. It's a fascinating thing. And I think we as fathers, especially, especially as dads, we do our kids a huge disservice when we fail to apologize to them because we mess up. We, we blow it. But when you apologize to your kids, you give them two opportunities. You give them the opportunity to see that you're a human being and you know it. But you also give them the opportunity to imitate God and forgive you. And they learn the skill of forgiveness. Of all the things we're going to teach our kids as they grow up, what a valuable tool for them to leave home with is the ability to forgive and to know that you can mess up and, and still love somebody. You can mess up and, and still be married. You can mess up and still be parent-child, but you messed up. And I think dads play a massive, massive role in establishing that culture in the home. Moms do as well. Don't kid yourself. But I think dads especially we need to be a little freer with the apologies than, than we naturally probably gravitate toward. 
But returning to marriage, look at what Paul says. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Here's what that means. Before you roll over and go to sleep, you make sure that each other knows you're still on the same team. It doesn't mean that you've got the conflict completely resolved and put away, but it does mean that the compassion is back, that that choice to forgive, that choice to recalibrate, that choice to reconnect is still there. Julie and I have a shorthand. We just say, listen, this, this is not necessarily fun right now, but I'm not going anywhere. I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. I don't understand you right now, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not really digging how we're on different pages right now, but I'm not going anywhere. It's a powerful, powerful thing to say to your spouse. It's an amazing thing. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give the devil a foothold. You need to understand Satan is real. He's not a cartoon. He is real. And he is the enemy of God and everything that God loves, including you. And if he can torpedo our marriages, he will. The Bible tells us that he is like a roaring lion, prowling, roaming about, looking for those whom he will devour. Don't allow Satan to penetrate the perimeter of your marriage. You stay on guard against him. He is a liar, a deceiver, and a murderer. That is our enemy. Make no mistake about it. Our spouse is not the enemy. Well, you didn't hear what he said last night. I'm telling you, your spouse is not the enemy. Verse 29. Do not let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only, say only. only, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Here's another faith skill to develop. When you're in conflict with your spouse, or with anyone for that matter, but especially, especially, our spouse. Pray this prayer in the midst of it. God, show me how to love her. Show me how to love him like you want them loved right now. God, show me how the gospel works in this moment and how what I'm supposed to do to build her up according to her needs. Why are we in conflict? Why, why is this going on? What need of hers is not being met? Use me to meet that, God. You meet that through me. Let me be the hero in the story. Then all of a sudden, we realize in very practical, very tangible ways, it's not about me. It's about God loving her. It's about God loving him through us. And then we're freed up to actually do it, to actually provide what's needed. Isn't it fascinating how 
practical Scripture is? Isn't it fascinating? Let's just be honest here for a moment. How, how absolutely simple this is. This is not rocket surgery. This is really, really simple stuff. That doesn't mean it's easy. Some of you right now have got conflict from last night. And you're going, yeah, well. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't be stupid. Don't, don't say dumb words. That's a good thing to live by as well. Don't just... Whatever you say, whatever tone, whatever facial expressions you make, make sure that it's, it's for their needs. It, it's, it's helping that person. Verse 30 and 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That means that once you come into a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you eternally. You, you never lose salvation. Once you receive it genuinely and for reals, it's there eternally. But then verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. In the original Greek language, that verb there, get rid of it, is an imperative. It's a command. Do this. Get rid of it. Again, the beautiful thing about that is it means we have a choice. We can choose to not be bitter, to not be filled with rage, to not be resentful. We can actually choose to forgive. Have you ever thought this? I'm going to tell you I have. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. Whoever he may be, you know, or she, she doesn't deserve it. She hadn't even apologized. All right. Here's what I think Jesus would say to that. So what? So what? That's interesting and entirely irrelevant. Nobody has to, for, has to apologize for you to be able to forgive them. For me to forgive them? Forgiveness is something that happens in here irrespective of what happens out there. It's about letting go of the bitterness. So we have, again, this choice. We can keep score or we can let go. We can choose contempt or compassion. We choose whether or not to stay in conflict isn't that awesome? That's an incredible gift that God gives us. It also means we have an incredible responsibility. And the greatest part of all is that on our own, we can't do it. Isn't that cool? Tell your neighbor right now, you can't do that. You can't. That's what I tell grooms all the time in weddings. You know, we get to that part of the ceremony where I'll say, your responsibility is the same as mine. You are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Now today, 
before God and these assembled guests, and the gifts, but before God and the assembled guests, man, you're on your A game today. You're showered, tuxedoed up, hair product. But just remember, when you get home from the honeymoon, that's when you have to love her the same way I'm supposed to love Julie, as Christ loves the church. And on your best day, you can't pull that off, Hoss. You need the Holy Spirit of God. You have to walk on your knees to love a woman the way that Christ loves the church. Get rid of all that junk. Let it go. Quit keeping score. But Paul's not quite done. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. See how we've come full circle? Remember we started this conversation about conflict with reconciliation? Here it is again. It's almost like this really matters to God. It's almost like he knows this is how our lives work best. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Be kind. Passionate with. Compassion. A heart for, a heart with the other. Be kind and compassionate. In our neighborhood, trash gets picked up every Friday. Recycling is every other Friday. And I have a little bit of a a mental lapse. I can't remember when the every other is. And so I have to put it on my phone so I remember on Thursday night every other week to put out the recycling. I remember trash every Friday. And it's great. I mean, I love that we you know, throw stuff away and the, the waste people come and pick it up and take it away for us and take it to the landfill. Oh, that's great. But I have to tell you, on that every other Friday, there, there's something inside of me that, that just gets so happy when the trash and the recycling gets picked up. Does anybody else feel that way? I, I just, I'm like, man, the, the, the world is just right. All of the stars are aligned and the planets are as, it just feels great when that, when both of those cans are out in front of my house empty and then I wheel them down back to the garage and you're like, it's awesome. <laughs> That's what I picture in Ephesians 4.32. Just get, in 31, get rid of all the junk. Throw the trash away, but recycle the compassion recycle why you got married in the first place. One of the best things you can do as a couple is look at old photographs. Go back and look at your wedding album together. Just go, I had it going on that day. <laughs> Lean, mean, loving machine. That was a good day. Wedding day. And then you, you look back at, at memories. You know, if you've got kids and, and you see and the day you brought them home from the hospital, and you just see the terror in your eyes, and you go, we did that together, and they're still alive. It's just awesome. There's, there's a picture that's on our microwave at home. It's just stuck in the little window seal of the microwave at home of, of Emily and Joseph and me. Emily is about five, maybe four. Joseph's two or three. And we're all kind of huddled down around a, a, a homemade ice cream freezer. And I'm showing them, teaching them how to make homemade ice cream. It's one of my favorite pictures on the planet. It's just such a simple thing. 
but that's recycling. I, I look at those two kids, I go, Julie and I, we did that together. This marriage is worth fighting for. This marriage is worth fighting through. And, and this, is, this, is, this is recycling that compassion. It's keeping it alive. It's, it's fueling the fire in the empty nest. It, it's, it's reminding us why we got into this in the first place. And, and it's reminding me what God has called us to. To portray and to proclaim the gospel in the way that I love her. In the way that she loves me. In the way that we manage conflict and, and reconcile. And make up all, all of those things. Throw out the trash and recycle the passion. Chart a course toward happily even after the fight. And understand that in Christ, all things can work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. All things. Somebody right now may be thinking, Mac, you don't know about my marriage. It, it's, we're done. And, I, and I, know, I know that I don't know your story necessarily. But I will tell you this. I do know the one who rose from the dead. I do know the one who parted the Red Sea. I do know who made the blind man see. I do know who raises people from the dead, can raise marriages from the dead, and it's absolutely possible if you want it bad enough. This is our God, and this is what he does. Don't you give up. Don't you give up, and don't you quit. Because God didn't quit on you. He didn't quit on you. He didn't quit on me. He didn't quit on me. I gave him plenty of reasons to, <laughs> and he didn't quit. But it all starts, and it's fueled, and it will find its ultimate expression in a relationship with Jesus. In this one who went to the cross so you didn't have to, so I didn't have to, so that we could have a relationship with him. So that we could be reconciled to the God who made us for relationship. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this brief moment, I want to just invite you and ask you to consider that relationship. I know we've been talking about marriage. I, I know that. But I want to invite you to, to just make a, a mental leap from the marriage between a husband and wife to another kind of union, a relationship with God, because that's what Jesus Christ provides. That's why he became one of us and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. That's true, by the way. There's absolutely zero historical or intellectual argument about whether or not Jesus ever existed. And the spiritual reality of what he provides is that reconciliation. You see, our sin created a 
conflict. It, it ruptured the relationship with God that we were created for. Because he's God and we're not, in and of ourselves, we can't repair that relationship. If it was going to be repaired, he would have to do something about that. And so he did. He so loved you that he gave his only son so that if you would believe in him, you would be forgiven. You would be reconciled into relationship with God, into the life that is truly life forever. If you're here today and you've never taken hold of that life, you've never responded to the amazing grace of God, we want to give you the opportunity to do it right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment. Just, just pray silently where you are. Just say, Jesus, I need you, and I give you my life. I confess my sin to claim your forgiveness, and I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I've got. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you to just remain with your heads bowed for just a moment more. But if you just prayed that prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help take the next step in whatever way that we can. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things, if you would. Don't let this moment just stay here in the room today. Take the next step. Let us know that God did that in your life and you responded by taking that Connect card that's in the program. It's the program you got when you came in today. And just fill that Connect card out, your name and contact information, and then say, I committed my life to Christ this week. There's a, there's a place for you to just check a box right there. And that will allow us to begin to help, as I said, in any way that we can. Just tear that off at the perforation right there along the fold. And before you leave, hand it to one of our ushers, one of our greeters. And then the second thing is our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If that was your prayer today, would you just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand up high over your head? Just hold your hand up high and mark this moment, both in your life but also in the life of this church. Because there's nothing more important to us than what God just did in your life. And so it matters. We honor that and we celebrate that. You can put your hands down so that we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.